I don't know uh, how many of y'all, when you were growing up, ever took part in uh, show and tell time at school. Uh, I think this was a pretty, pretty much a staple of uh, elementary school days, where you would uh, bring something from home and you would show it, and then you would you would tell about it. Right? It's very simple. It's, it's it basically it is what it says it is. It's show and and tell. And I remember. I used to like show and tell time when I was sitting in the classroom watching somebody else do it, but I dreaded going up there to give a presentation. And in every class, we had to do at least one time of show and tell. And so I remember going up one time uh, after my family had recently bought a VCR. And I know uh, you guys are like, what the heck is a VCR? Uh, VCR stands for a video cassette recorder. Before there were DVDs, before there were Blu-ray, there were uh, tapes, VCR tapes. And what a, v- a VCR did was you could record and play back things that you watch on TV. That is a very, I mean, back then it was high tech, uh, very cool stuff. And so when I was probably about, I don't know, second grade or so, my family bought a, a VCR and I had to do show and tell. So I remember I went up there and I said three sentences. My family just got a VCR. We recorded the Grammy Awards. I cannot wait to watch it on my new VCR. And I sat down. I don't think anyone in my class that day ran home to their parents and said, Oh my gosh, mom and dad, we got to buy a VCR. Because this kid, uh, David Kim, talked about his VCR and how they recorded the Grammys and he's going to watch it. And it got me so excited. Can, can, we, can we get one, please? I don't think anyone said that. Because it was, it was, just, it was completely uh, unenthusiastic showing and telling. But here's the cool thing about show and tell is when you do it right, when you do it right, it makes the people who are listening and watching want the very product or the very thing that you're talking about. So someone comes up and they've got this like grand, uh, brand new uh, Transformers toy and they're talking about it and they're showing you all of the things that it does and you run home and you're like, man, mom, I, I need to get that Transformer toy. Or they, they've got this like um, this new baseball card set that's come out and back then I was uh, in love with baseball cards. They would, they would show these baseball cards and uh, I, I didn't run home and, and to my mom and try and buy them, but I tried to steal them from this kid and I was like, man, if I could only have these things because they showed and they told in such a way that it made me want to have it. This is what good showing and, and telling does. We've got Resurrection Sunday coming up in a couple weeks, and I, it's usually Easter and Christmas are the two Sundays out of the year where the church is most filled with guests. And, and I, I want to talk about this idea of showing and telling in such a way that Jesus said when you show forth the gospel and you tell forth the gospel, it becomes a powerful witness for people, and it makes people say, I want to have what they've got. And, and so the question is, has there been a time recently where somebody looked at our lives and said, man, I really want what they've got. I know that there's something different about them. I know they go to church. I know that it's Jesus. And because of Jesus, their life is different. And I, I want what they've got. Because this idea of showing and telling, not just telling or not just showing, but showing and telling is Jesus' prescribed means of communicating the gospel to people. So I want to talk about that for a couple of weeks. Real simple, um, real simple stuff. Today, um, I, I want to look into John chapter 1 uh, and just share the, uh, a story from the life of a dude named Philip and his buddy Nathaniel. Philip is really cool because this comes in this context, John chapter 1, where John talks about Jesus coming as God himself incarnate coming into our neighborhood and living in uh in in 
uh, our earth living in our world. And then it fast forwards about 30 years. Jesus is about 30 years old. And he's calling his first followers to come after him and to be part of his group of people that he would use and train and teach to go forth and to transform the world. And so in this, uh, we're going to see the calling of Jesus. First, a few people. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 43 uh, through 51. This is God's word. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's God's word. It's really cool. Uh, again, be real simple today. Philip, uh, one of Jesus' first disciples. Right, so he, Jesus calls Andrew. Andrew runs and he gets Peter. And then he, he goes to the next person and he moves on. And so this is where we pick up in verse 43. The first thing that I, I want to communicate as we uh, offer this hope of Christ, as we seek to show and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first thing that is, is essential that Philip had that we see in him was that he had experienced grace. Okay. What in the world does that mean? Um, he'd experienced grace. In, in verse 43, it says, The next day after Jesus calls... Uh, Andrew and Simon Peter, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said, then follow me. And then verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Two things that are very curious here that commentators talk about. In verse 43, it says, finding Philip. Okay, this is pretty cool. It doesn't say Philip found Jesus, but it says Jesus found Philip. There's the first thing. The second thing that we see here, verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, the first disciples, was from the town of Bethsaida. This is something that the commentators have kind of talked about and, and wrote about. They said, if Andrew, okay, so here's Andrew first. Jesus calls Andrew, and then it's, it says in verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah that is a Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Here's what Andrew's saying. He's saying, I found the fulfillment of the hopes and the dreams of the ages. I have found the one that all of the law and the prophets had written about. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And I found him. The most important person in all of history, the most important person that you and I will ever meet has come. And so Peter, come in and see him. So the question that kind of baffles these commentators is it says in verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. They knew each other. But why didn't... Andrew gets Philip also. It's very interesting because that's the kind of guy Philip was. Uh, some folks would write that Philip is the kind of guy, you know, in, in every group of friends, he's like this. He's the invisible one. In other places, it would say that uh, Philip was a little bit smart. But he's also very quiet. He's really shy. Like in a group of a bunch of people, 
uh, going around in a small group discussion. He would never say anything. Right? That was Philip, kind of the, the invisible person, the forgotten person, the kind of person a bunch of y'all are going to go to, uh, I don't know, New Smyrna Beach, right? So you create a Facebook event just to see who's going to go, and they can invite other people. And so uh, time of the time of your trip to the beach comes. And so that morning, before you leave for the meeting point, you look in uh, the Facebook event and you see 10 people. All right, 10 people. And you look through their names. You're like, all right, this is very cool. And so you get to the meeting place. Say you're meeting at church. So you come to church and you meet. You're supposed to meet at 9 o'clock. It's 9.15 and nine people are here. So you're looking around. You're like, okay, everyone's here, right? Everyone's here. You're like, no, 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 no. How many people are supposed to be here? Oh, there's supposed to be 10. How many are here right now? Uh, there's nine. And, you're, and everyone is like, who's missing? So you're like, he's here. He's here. He's here, she's here, she's here, here. I think that's it. I think you must have uh, mistakenly looked at the Facebook event. No, 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 no. It legitimately said 10 attending. And who's the last one? And then 920, somebody comes in the parking lot. And you're like, oh, Philip. It's Philip. I totally forgot about How can we forget Philip? And so Philip comes rolling in. That's who Philip was. You go on a mission trip. You've got eight people on the mission team. And every time people are like, hey, how many people are going to uh, Saudi Arabia this year? Oh, we've got eight people. Who are they? Uh, John and Jack and Jill and, and Albert and Daniel and Hannah and Stefan. And oh, who's the other one? Uh, did, I, did I say Stefan already? Yeah, he said, uh, how many? That, that, that's seven. Man, who's the eighth one? Let me, okay, there's John and Jack and Jill and Albert and Daniel and Joshua. Uh, who, who's missing? Stefan. Oh, Philip. It was Philip. Philip. Philip was the one who's always a forgotten one. And they're always forgetting Philip. And so here's Andrew. Has the most amazing encounter of his life. He tells his buddy, his brother to come, but then he forgets about Philip. And so when it comes to verse 43, and it says, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And nobody ever finds Philip. There was nothing great about Philip. He was quiet. He was shy. He was almost invisible. And yet when Jesus comes to him and he says, you, I need you. Come and, and follow me. Philip is like, hmm? I mean, he's shy. Me? You talking to me? <laughs> Just me? Really? Me follow you, Jesus? Okay, I'll. And he follows him. And he's filled with this, this encounter of, of grace that he understood this not because I'm good. It's not because I'm, I'm smart. It's, it's not because of anything good in me. But Jesus just came and he found me and he said, follow me. And, and, and Philip came and he went. And he tasted and experienced grace that day. Amazing grace Christ gave that day. And Philip is like, dude, I'm going to follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. Because he knew that he wasn't, he, he knew that in a worldly sense, he wasn't supposed to be there. I don't know if you've heard this story or, or read this book called um, A Father's Letters to a Son or something like that, written by a guy named Daniel Taylor. In this letter, um, in this book of letters, he's writing to his, to his young children. And this great uh, letter that he writes and I'm not going to read it, but I'll just kind of, the long and short of it is, he talks about how he, when he was in sixth grade, he was a stud. Right? Kind of, I, I, and in sixth grade, I was kind of like that also. Just real um, popular, athletic, smart. Good. Actually, it wasn't me. I was a, I was a nerd. Um, Olivia still says I'm a nerd right now. She's like, look at your glasses. But anyways, um, this guy, Dan, Dan was not a nerd. He was a real deal. He was smart. He was good looking. He was athletic. 
Like all the all the kids wanted to hang out with him when they ever they had time for recess. Everybody wanted to play with with Dan, and so uh, sixth grade Dan. One of the things you do in sixth grade, I don't know if you remember doing this. I remember actually vividly doing this in sixth grade. Also, you did a thing called square dance. Y'all remember that? You have to like do si do and spin your partner around the thing and all this stuff. So they do this thing called uh, square dance, and the way they do it, do it, they'd have all the guys line up in a row, and then they would have uh, against the wall, and then they would have all the, all the girls sit in their seat. And then one by one, the guys would pick their dance partner. This is atrocious. Right? So he's writing this letter to his son. He's like, imagine being, hey, no guy wanted to do this. No guy wanted to choose who their dance partner was going to be. He says, but imagine being a girl. Imagine being a girl. I'm wondering, when am I going to get picked? Am I going to get picked? Thinking about the people who get chosen before you and wondering, are they better than me? Or think about the people who have to wait until the very end and they never get picked. And then he, as he's writing this letter, he says, think about Mary. He says, this is girl Mary in a sixth grade class. There was nothing really that great about Mary. She was nice. But in sixth grade, being nice is, is not really enough. In those days, at least. She was nice, but she wasn't smart. And she wasn't pretty. She wasn't, you know, didn't have the look of a model. And she wasn't athletic at all. In fact, she had this kind of, uh, this disease, this illness when she was a child that crippled her. So that she walked with a limp and one of her arms was, could, never, uh, could never straighten. And so this was, this was Mary. So here's Dan. He says he has this assistant teacher who really liked him and saw that he was a good, good apple, but also realized that he had a thing or two to learn. And so she said, hey, Dan, next time we square dance, I want you to choose Mary. And he's thinking to himself, you know what? This goes against every bone of coolness in my body. There's no way I'm going to choose Mary. Everyone is going to make fun of me. I have, I have accumulated all of this, this coolness credit, and to, to use it all on, on Mary is not worth it. But then she dropped the bombshell and she said, you know, that's what Jesus would do. And you bring Jesus in the question, you've got to obey, right? So he's got this tension. He's like, ah, oh, what am I going to do? So he prayed to God, said, God, if you really love me, then you will let me choose last. Because if I choose last, I can still choose Mary and there'll be no cost to my reputation. So as God would have it, that day Dan was first in line. And so in his mind, he's wrestling, right? There's the cool kids. And then there's my teacher. There's the cool kids. And then there's Jesus. There's the cool kids. And then there's Mary. He said, in that moment, time froze. And he said, he could almost like not even control his mouth as his words came out. It was like slow motion. And the teacher said, Dan, it's your turn to choose. And he said, I choose Mary. He looked at all these girls, right? Some of them were looking at him, smiling, right? Fluttering their eyelids or... Like Korean girls do this. <laughs> Choose me, right? He looked at Mary, and, and Mary was kind of half turned away from everybody else with her head facing the table. And when he chose Mary, he said her face just beamed. Like this flush of red just came over her face. He said it was a combination of, of sheer delight, of embarrassment, of, of complete surprise. He said, I don't know what was going on, but one of the things that I saw in that place was the, the look of the most genuine delight that I've ever seen in my life. 
And she had this huge smile and she walked up with her limp and she put her arm in his and he said, she walked like a princess. Walking with me that day, being the first one chosen. And as he's writing this letter to his young son, he says, I never saw Mary after that year. I don't know what she did after that. I don't know where she went. I don't know what she became. But I think one thing is for sure. That at least for one day, she felt like the most amazing person in the world. And I gave her the most unforgettable day of her life. And I think about that story and I think that's us. That you and I, we're Mary. That you and I are the broken ones, the ugly ones, the ones that people shun and make fun of and poke fingers at and gossip about and talk about behind our backs. They smile at us in front of us, but then they talk about us behind our backs. That's us. That's Philip. And Jesus comes and he says, finding Philip, he says, follow me. You see, unless we experience this kind of grace, people of God, we're never going to tell people about Jesus. Because here's the thing. I think a great many of us have this view of Christianity that it's about going to church and that's all I do. And so why would I tell people to to come to church? Oh, maybe to to eat good food and to play some games and then to sing some cool songs and to meet some cool people. But that's not going to engender much deeper than that. Unless we've experienced the grace of God. In John 15, Jesus says, you did not choose me. Okay, check this out. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Here's a problem. Here's a problem. Is that living in this land of, of plenty, where we're bombarded with choices. You go to 7-Eleven, and I don't know if it still says it, but it used to say freedom of choice. And, and like refrigerators stocked with drinks. And then you go to the fountain. And it's got like many, many drinks and you can do all this stuff and and, ching, and then your drink comes out. But they've got this thing now where not only you get the regular Coke or Diet Coke or, or Sprite or whatever it is, but they've got these buttons you push and then you add cherry or vanilla or chocolate to your drink. Like you've got all these choices. And in this land of plenty... We have become accustomed to thinking that everything we have is a product of our choices. And so here we are when it comes to religion. And I call it religion. It's not, it shouldn't really be. But when it comes to religion, you've got Buddhism. You've got Taoism. You've got Hinduism. You've got Islam. You've got Christianity. You've got uh, Scientology. You've got Oprah, whatever it is that she believes. You've got all of these things. And then you choose. You think you choose Christianity. So you're like, I choose Jesus. So what ends up happening is if we're the ones choosing, then we think we're in control. So you're playing kickball with your friends or dodgeball and you make your teams. If I'm the captain, here's who I choose. I choose, okay, I'll choose James. I'll choose Seho, Hajang. I'll choose Jane. I'll choose uh, Pastor Albert. These are people on my team. And if they don't do well, what do I do? I can kick them off my team. Why? Because I chose them. If they don't do well, I can yell at them. I can say, what's wrong with you? You are my number one draft pick. Why can't you perform? I want to get rid of you. And so it is in our relationship with God. So many times we feel like I chose God. And if God, you're not performing for me, then what's wrong with you? Don't you know God? I could have chosen Allah, but I chose you. I could have chose that, that big belly Buddha that sits in, our, uh, in, the, in the Thai restaurant on 50, I could have chose him, but I chose you. 
I chose you, God. I didn't need to choose you. Why aren't you pulling through for me? Why aren't I, I've been praying for, for five years. How come I haven't gotten this yet? God, I've been, I've been doing this. And, and why is it that that person does better than me? And why, God, why? And we ask these questions as if God owes us something. As if we're the ones who chose God. Like God of the universe who created this world. And, and here's like tiny us in, in the middle of 7 billion people. And we think God should be at our beck and call. Because we think somehow that we chose God. Just finding Philip. St. Augustine says we, there would be no way that we would choose God if he had not chosen us first. There'd be no way that we would seek after God if he had not sought after us first. I think that if you ask Philip, if you ask Mary, yes, this Mary who was chosen by dad, he, she would probably, maybe one day if they have this intimate moment, of, of conversation. They're, they're old people now. And, and they have this high school reunion 30 years or something. And she's like 40 years old, 50, 45 years old. And they're talking she's like, I have a question, Dan. Why did you choose me? Out of 30, your partner to be, you know, and you see, and everyone sees all the wrong that's in me. But how could you choose me? It was the same thing for Philip. And it's the same thing for us. The question rather should be, why have you chosen me? Out of billions, your child to be. You know all the wrong that I have done. But how could you pardon me? Forgive my iniquity. To save me, give Jesus your son. Have you tasted of that grace, people of God? Have you experienced grace? Because it's not just about what we do and about this list of things that we do, but it's that he came down to save us. And he chose you and me. And we need to have experienced grace if we're going to tell others about this grace. The second thing that we see, second thing that we see is not only do we have to experience grace, but grace causes us to be excited about Christ, excited for Christ, excited about Christ. Verse 44, 45. The very next thing that he did, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. And he goes and he tells Nathanael, here's a cool thing about Philip. Not only did Philip become a disciple, but he brought Nathanael to come and be a disciple as well. And isn't that what, what you want to do? But it doesn't happen without an excitement for Christ, right? Because we, we experience grace. You think Mary ever stopped talking about that day when Dan Taylor, the stud muffin of the sixth grade, chose me first out of everyone else to be his partner. Grace amazes, excitement fills, and we go and we tell. I, I think... We are great at evangelizing, great at sharing the good. That's what evangelism is. It's sharing the good news. We're great at doing that, aren't we? It's satisfied customers who are the best evangelists for anything, who are the best propagators of good news, the best proponents of good news. I, I don't hide my love for uh, infomercials. I think they're really exciting. It's like one of them is like they make things so easy. Have you seen the, the magic bullet, right? It says in three seconds you could have the most amazing homemade salsa. And they push it. It's like one second. It's like cheese and tomatoes and all this other stuff. One second, two second, and then bang. And they count to three, and it's like five second, third second. But for a, a long, long, long three seconds, they make it seem so easy. 
and everything is so simple when it comes to these infomercials. I think the thing I love about infomercials is they make everything so easy. Okay. Got a plane landing here somewhere? You have now reached your final destination. Okay, good. They make everything so easy, but at the same time, it's also so cheesy. You know, they have these things where they show testimonies of people. Like, it's not just wow, it's sham wow. I love that one. It's like, not just wow, sham wow. It's amazing. But they've got these people who are like, they bought this product and they swear that it's revolutionized their life. And then they have this thing at the bottom. It says actual testimonies. These are not actors. I think to myself, you know what? If you need to get an actor to talk about how good your product is, then your product is not worth selling. You know what I'm saying? You got this thing that you, that, that you have marketed as something that will make your life so much better. And if no one thinks their life is better because of it, it's probably because their life is not much better. And you probably shouldn't be selling that thing. Actual testimonies, because they're the best advocates of a product or of a thing. We, we talk about this all the time. Well, we've been waiting, we've been waiting. We've been, how many people have been waiting for Four Rivers to come out on, in, in, in Winter Garden? You guys are like, yeah, just one person. But that's okay. He's a great, he's a great evangelist, Paul. He's like, oh, my gosh, is it coming? Is it coming? And everyone's like, it's coming next month. It's coming next month. And someone said, it came last week. And they're like, no, it didn't. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. And it, and it turns out it did. And people are like, oh, my gosh, my life is going to be changed. And this is amazing stuff. We talk, about, we talk about restaurants all the time. We share the good news of these restaurants. I am a, I'm a great evangelist for the iPhone because I've been waiting for months and months and months and months and months for Verizon to come to iPhone. And I am convinced that it's changed my life. It has changed. It has made everything so much better. The grass is greener. The flowers smell a little bit better. And you guys all look a lot more beautiful. And it's, it's just a great thing. But we do this with people too, don't we? My life was miserable until he came into it. My life was hopeless until he sang that song of love. I had no purpose for living until I saw him. Now I can wake up in the morning and sing that song. He is touching lives on every continent. And I'm so grateful. I'd like to introduce you to Justin Bieber. <laughs> but we do this, don't we? We get so excited about all of these things. But what would it look like if you we were that excited about Jesus? And what would it look like if you we were that passionate about telling people about the one who has saved our soul. The one who came down to find us, led us out of death. If it's really like I was hellbound and mercy came running like a prisoner set free to capture my heart. If it's really that good, should there not be an excitement that he has chosen you and me? What happens when we get that excited? Uh, uh, Michael Carr, John Piper, all these people tell about this story of a, of a Maasai warrior named Joseph. Maasai is a, a tribe uh, and, uh, near uh, Kenya, semi-nomadic people. Joseph was a warrior, and he was, uh, they say, the most unlikely attendee at a Billy Graham conference for evangelism. You've got all these people, and then you've got this Maasai warrior coming. 
And his testimony uh, won an audience with, with Billy Graham. And he shares his testimony. This is what, this is what he says. So one day he was walking on this like hot African roads. And somebody came and they shared the gospel with him. It was right then and there. He gave his life to Christ. And the Holy Spirit just came upon him and he began growing like crazy. And he said, you know what? This is amazing. Like, this is so exciting that God came into our world and he gave me life. He died for my sins so that I could go to heaven. I could be forgiven. He's like, I need to tell, I need to tell the people in my village about it. So he ran to his village and with enthusiasm, he said, I can't wait to tell them because they're going to flip out. And so he went and he shared with them, there's a God who came and his name is Jesus. And he died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven so that you could go to heaven. And the men, men took him and they threw him on the ground and they held him while women took barbed wire and they beat him until he bled and was almost unconscious. And they threw him into a bush. And as he was going in and out of consciousness, he thought to himself, what, what just happened? And after days, he was near a watering hole. He drank water and gained strength. And he said, wow, something must have been wrong in how I told the story. Because this is such an exciting message. How could they, how could they respond to that? And so he began rehearsing his lines again. And, and he said, I must have said something wrong. And so he, he, he thought about the gospel again. And he went back to his village a second time. And he began to tell this story and it, it, with even more passion, with even more excitement, with even more fervor. And they did the same thing. They, they took him and they threw him on the ground and they held him and they beat him again, opening up the fresh wounds that had just begun to heal. And they threw him outside of the city gates, outside of the village, outside of the village. And again, just in and out of consciousness, he said, I don't know what, what happened. What's going on? And, and he said, they must not have understood. And so he said a third time, he said, I need to go back. I need to go back and I need to tell them. I need to tell them of, of this grace that I've tasted. That's so filled my heart. I can't, I can't keep it to myself. I need to go. These people who I've known for the longest time, I want them to be with me in heaven. I want them to know Jesus. I want their, their, their hearts to be cleansed of the guilty conscience. He went again a third time and he began to tell them. And before he even opened his mouth, they grabbed him and they threw him down and they started beating him again. And he, he closed his eyes and went out of consciousness. He said the last thing that he saw, the last thing that he saw before he lost consciousness was these women who were beating him began crying and began shedding tears. And then he, he knocked out. The next thing he knows, he woke up, he was in his own bed. And the people who, were, who had, had inflicted these wounds were now tearfully cleaning, cleansing, and healing his wounds. He said his entire village came to know Christ that day. Right, what would it take for us to go and share the message of hope with people in need. It's the gospel that you and I believe that exciting that we want people to know it. Or is it just a gospel of good advice that says, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And come to church on Sunday, get excited a little bit, come to church, house church, come to church on Saturday, have fun, and then go back home and live your life. That kind of a testimony is not worth living and dying for. But when we experience grace, he found me, he freed me, he set me apart, and he sent me into the world. And he says, go. 
And so Philip did. The last thing that we see, not only did he experience grace, not only did, was there excitement for Christ, but the last thing, he extended an invitation. Before we get to that place, look at the response. Verse 44, 45, he tells him, Nathaniel, check this out. Verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. You know, like this Maasai warrior Joseph, a lot of times our excitement for Christ is going to be met with hostility. You know this. A lot of times your, your excitement for Christ is not going to be met by this ready acceptance. Oh, my gosh, can I? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? See, Nathaniel grew up in a town of Cana, right? You know Cana because that's where Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding there. Two miles apart, Cana was this bustling town. Nazareth was this, this like, dusty, poor town. They were, like, almost like high school rivals, like uh, cross-town rivals. They hate each other. They don't like each other. You find out that the best hot new thing, athlete, whatever it is, is coming out of your rival high school. You're like, come on now. Are you kidding me? Especially when they're from the other side of the track. Nazareth. Now, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so it was met with this hostility. And maybe... In our lives, that's our story. We're sharing the message of hope. We're excited about it, and then we're met by, yeah, but what about yada, 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 and all these other things. How did uh, Philip respond? He didn't say, okay, fine, Debbie Downer. Don't follow him. I'm going to follow him on my own then. He didn't say that. He didn't begin to, to talk about these, uh, I don't know, spiritual promises about Nazareth and about all of these things. What, what did he do? It was so simple. Verse 46, he says, come. And see. And that's all he says. He says, come and see. And sometimes it's as simple as that. You go to somebody and you say, hey, I know that you've been looking and you've been searching and you've been longing and you've been waiting. Let me tell you, Jesus has changed my life. Like, okay, that's cool for you. But it ain't cool for me because I didn't grow up in that kind of a spiritual religious household. That's cool. Just come and see. Just come and see. Come meet some of these people in my house, church. Come and see. Come and see what we do on Saturday nights. A different kind of joy. A new kind of joy. A lasting kind of joy. Come see what we do. Meet the people in our congregation on a Sunday morning. Come and, and see. That's all he said. And Nathaniel's life forever, eternally changed. He comes and he sees. Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching. Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. How do you know me? I saw you while you're still under the fig tree. The fig tree was a place where ancient Israelites would sit and they would wait and read the scriptures and long for the fulfillment of the prophetic word that said a Messiah was going to come. And so Jesus looks into his heart and he says, he says, Nathaniel, I know that you're longing. I know that you're seeking. I know that you're wanting. Let me uncover all that stuff. Let me uncover all that stuff that you, you want all of these things. Let me get to the heart of it. Here I am. I know you and I'm calling you to come and, and follow me. It's a simple invitation to come and see, in late 1890s, early 1900s, there's a preacher in Edinburgh, Scotland named Alexander White, great, famous preacher. And there was a, a businessman, a guy named Rigsby. He would go 
And whenever he would travel, he would make it a point to go to Edinburgh to hear uh, Alexander White preach. And every time he would go, he was a businessman, traveling businessman. He would always bring one of his businessmen friends with him. He would say, come and see this man preach the word of God. There's one particular night this guy came. On one particular Sunday, he came and he listened and he was so enamored that he came back that Sunday night. They had an evening service as well. And so Rigsby brought this guy. They came back on Sunday night, and this guy gave his life to Christ. And as they're leaving uh, later that week, um, this guy went his own way, and Rigsby was walking down the streets of Edinburgh, and he was about to pass Alexander White's home. He knew where he lived. And so he said, I think it would, uh, I want to share with him the story of this guy's conversion. So he knocked on the door, and uh, he opened the door, and he said, hey, my name is Rigsby, and uh, my friend came. I, I uh, came and he gave his life to Christ last Sunday night. And, and Alexander White looked at me and he said, oh, you're Rigsby. He's like, I've been wanting to meet you. And he ran into a study and brought back this stack of letters. Brought this stack of letters and it was written by people who had given their lives to Christ through the preaching ministry of Alexander White. And he said, every single one of these people mentioned your name, that you brought them to my church. And because you brought them, they came and they saw and their lives have been changed because of grace. He said, thank you for partnering in the work of the ministry with me. Because your reward will be great on the other side. It's that simple. Just come and see. Come and see. And so Jesus tells them all of these things. And then he says, you know what? Nathaniel says, you are who you say you are. I want to follow you. And Jesus says this, this crazy passage. He says, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. Obviously, hearkening his mind back to Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob, who was named Israel, who was all about being false and being deceitful. And then he, he mentions something in verse 51. He then added, it's kind of like, let me just throw this on at the end. I tell you the truth, which means, hey, listen to this. Amen, amen. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You remember that Jacob had this dream laid down on a rock. And he had this dream of a heavens opening up and Jacob's ladder coming down and angels ascending and descending on the stairway to heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. Nathaniel, check this out. You think you know me because of all these things. But I'm going to tell you a little something. I'm going to tell you something. Greater things you'll see. Here's what you're going to see. That you're looking face to face and locking eyes with the stairway to heaven. You'll see angels in desc- ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's me. Think I'm the stairway to heaven. You, you guys think that you can, you can work your way up there and that you choose me and that because of something that you've done, you can get up there. He's saying, no, 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 no. The angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man because Jesus is the one who came down from heaven to where we are, to be the bridge, so that we could get up there, and then he's the one who takes us up there as well. It's like the guy say, it, I don't, I've never seen Tangle, but I know the story of Rapunzel. The guy's down at the bottom, and he wants to get up to the top, but he can't. So he says, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. She lets down her hair, and so he gets up because of her who came down. Jesus saying, Nathaniel, that's me. Before there was Tangled, there was Jesus. I came down to save you, to be the stairway to heaven, and to take you up to that place. And Jesus is saying, this is what I've done. If you come and see, this is what you'll see. You'll see a man who does things that nobody else could ever do. You'll see a man who, who, who finds Samaritan women at the well, people that nobody would talk to, and he talks to them, and he gives grace to them and gives them living water, and they're forever, forever transformed. You follow me, this is what you'll see. You'll see miracles that, that, that would never be explained away. Then you'll see me, 
on the last day of my life, what you think is the last day of my life, dying on a cross for your sins and the sins of the world. To take our punishment for him, uh, upon himself on the cross. And he says, I've taken it all so that you could have it all. And he says, three days later, you'll see me rise from the grave victorious. And then I'll ascend into heaven and I'll sit enthroned at the right hand of the father until I come back down again. He's saying, now you've come and you've seen. And extend now that invitation to come and see. It's really that simple. It happens outside of a village in Africa in a Maasai tribe. It happens in a sixth grade square dancing class. It happens in uh, uh, the streets of Edinburgh, Scotland. It's happening all over the world. People saying, come and see. And lives being transformed. And he's calling you to come and see what you could do when you ask people to come and see the truth of who I am. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord God. Maybe uh, there are people in your heart that the Lord is bringing to your mind. And he's saying, hey, you've been praying for them. You've been thinking about them. Maybe this Resurrection Sunday, two weeks, Jesus saying, invite them to come and see. Maybe others of us in here, we're not, have not yet tasted, experienced grace. We say, can God really love me? Jesus says, come and see. Can he really forgive the deep down, dirty, shameful things that I've done? He says, come and see. Can he really set me free from this addiction? Come and see. Let's take a minute or two to pray right now. Just to respond to the word of the Lord. It's allowing grace to wash over our hearts, to convict and to recapture our hearts again. Maybe it's just to sit there and to ask, God, why have you chosen me? Maybe it's just to sit there and to let grace, like an ocean, wash over you. And if grace is an ocean, as they say, then we're all drowning. Drown in that grace. Receive of his grace. Let's take a couple moments to pray to the Lord, and then we'll close this time. Father in heaven, maybe uh, some of us in here have been beating ourselves up over our lack of evangelistic fervor. And we just crucify ourselves. We say, God, why can't I do it? Why don't I do it? Why am I so selfish? Father, for those in here like that, would you wash over them and speak a special message of grace and tell them that you need to taste it before you can talk about it. And may they be overwhelmed this morning that you, O God of creation, God of wonder, beauty, splendor, and worth have chosen sinful, broken, wayward, lost, 
people like us. You've called us your beloved. Amaze us again, O God. Woo us again, O God. And may we go forth as one captured by grace, surrendered to love, child of God, going to another, whom you don't consider invisible, but whom you long to be yours as well. So help us to come and see, and then help us to call others to come and see. We thank you, love you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.